Today's Access Utah was recorded on Friday, but you can still reach us with a comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, and we'll get it on at the beginning of the next Access Utah. Welcome to Access Utah. We're going to be talking today about a new book called Drive, The Definitive History of Driving. The book charts 130 years from the arrival of the horseless carriages to the advent of driverless vehicles. Drive celebrates the automobile and the romance of the open road. It's produced in conjunction with the Smithsonian. The book explores the early glamour of driving, motorsport, and car design, looks at how the automobile has shaped the modern world, beginning with the development of the first vehicles powered by an internal combustion engine. Drive uh, tracks trends in auto manufacturing and the public's changing tastes in cars, whether it's the golden era sports cars such as the MG, the Austin Healey 3000, Alfa Romeo, Jaguar, and Chevrolet muscle cars like the Mustang, hot rods, custom cars, hippie standard VW, or modern day hybrids. And we're talking with the editor-in-chief of the book, uh, Giles Chapman. He's the leading international authority on the automobile, its industry and its culture, and its history. He's a former editor of the best-selling Classic and Sports Car magazine. He's also award-winning author of more than 40 books, including Classic Car. And he joins us from London, I believe. Giles Chapman, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me. We appreciate you being with us. Just a gorgeous book. It's a nice nice addition to anybody's library and some interesting history here. Um, I want to uh, you. You say some uh, interesting things in the foreword here. Um, let's see. People have been driving cars for almost a century and a half, and in that time, these freedom-giving machines have radically changed the world. Radically changed the world. Uh, briefly, how? Well, I mean, I think uh, when, when we start the narrative of this book, we're really in a period where the, the, the key way of getting around is on foot. And, uh, you know, uh, certainly in, in the States, at uh, the time when the car comes along, I think there are only sort of 5 or 10% of the roads are anything but, but you know, dirt. So, uh, you know, the car arrives in a world that isn't very well equipped for it. And, uh, you know, most uh, 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 transport in in urban areas and, in fact, you know, between cities and so on is done by the horse or by trains. So uh, the car arrives really and it's, it's, I think, viewed with a great deal of suspicion by most people because, you know, we are all pedestrians. Nowadays, we're all drivers and motorists. In those days, you you know, children played in the street and that was entirely normal. And, uh, you know, the, the, biggest, the biggest sort of um, uh, uh, kind of threat they faced was probably from horse manure and all, all that was in it, because that was everywhere, you know. So it was in a very, very uh, uh, a, a sort of different time, if you like. And um, at first, obviously, cars are very, very expensive, and they, they're really just the playthings of the rich. Um, they, they're unreliable. Um, they are dangerous, you know, things like brakes, pretty poor. And, uh, you know, the, the pedestrian world really has quite a dim view of them, really, until we get into sort of 1910, that sort of era. Now, cars have then have been around for 25 years, so you'd think we've got used to them. But really, uh, until that time, nobody really worked out how to make them affordable. So, you know, for most ordinary people, they were still on the bus or the train, kind of looking at wealthy people having a good time with their cars out of the window. And... Um, you know, really, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, it, it's Henry Ford who, who, you know, puts the world on wheels with the Model T. And, uh, you know, he does that by mass production techniques and also making a car that really, really worked for America because it's got very, very high ground clearance. So it's able to go along unmade roads and get around boulders and 
go through mud and all the rest of it. And it's very, very robust. So he cracks these two um, two key things, really. And, uh, and I think it's at that point when the price of this car really comes down so much because of mass production, everyone can afford one. And, you know, then the floodgates open. So it, it really does take a very long time for cars to, to become accepted everywhere. And that's, that's the point I'm making. And really, uh, in writing this book, I wasn't trying to do another history of cars because that's been done, you know, ad infinitum. We really were trying to concentrate on the car and what it means to, um, well, I will say you and I, probably our, our great-grandparents who were around then, you know, and how they viewed it, how they used it, um, how they got used to it. Uh, what takes back to uh, the early times with the car? Um, and you said uh, very early ones were steam-powered, very, very slow, about, about as fast as you could walk. Yeah, um, that's true. I, I mean, I think we start by having a, a vehicle that can, pro- that can propel itself. It really was, a, if you like, a, a railway engine uh, without the tracks. And uh, they weren't terribly easy to control, as you, as you rightly say. But electric cars were also very much part of the, uh, the nascent beginning of, of, of cars as we know them. And they actually did have a very fighting chance to be the prevailing technology uh, right up until, you know, 1905. It, it's only when we get the advent of electric starters on cars that things change a little bit. That's because, right. Yeah. You know, that, that means that you, you don't have to actually start it with a, with a starting handle, which is very hard work, you know, for both men and women. And uh, once, they, once they crack the idea of just a button you can push and an electric gadget that gets it going for you, I think that gets over one of the last hurdles to, you know, the petrol or gasoline-powered car absolutely taking over. So it's a breakthrough that, you know, not many people think about, really, because, you know, these days, well, these days we don't even have starter buttons on our cars. We just have little things in our pockets <laughs> that yeah, make them right. work when we step in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, was uh, interested to, I was interested to learn um, early rules, um, four miles per hour speed limit on, I guess, out, out on the roads, and, and you had to have a guy with a red flag walking in front of you? Well, you did, but that's what we had to suffer here in the UK. Yeah. Uh, that, didn't, that didn't really affect the States or mainland uh, no, Europe. No, no. We, 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 we were very hampered in this, in this country, this country being, you know, Britain, where I'm speaking from, uh, because there was a, you know, a, a very powerful um, anti-car lobby, and um, they weren't very keen on these things uh, running around the streets at 20 miles an hour, scaring the horses. So they were able to slap this... Uh, um, uh, you know, draconian rule, really, uh, which, which and, and in a way, that actually held back car development in, in this country. I think in France and the U.S., they were a long way ahead of us here in the U.K., mm-hmm. uh, you know, because we're British and very arrogant. We almost <laughs> regard ourselves as the biggest car enthusiast in the world. <laughs> but um, that wasn't, certainly wasn't the case at the beginning, and it, mm. it, it very much slowed the development of our industry down because, um, you know, people were just very anti-car. Yeah, uh, just the I guess scaring the horses. What what else? What, and I don't think this was unique to to Britain, right? To various areas. It, it, there's a transition period. Uh, are, are we actually going to use these? I guess you know, smelly, yeah. <laughs> fast, uh, loud things. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a transition period. I I, I think here we did we did. You know, we just had a, a lingering suspicion about them, and probably because most of the cars that were run in Britain right the way up to 1910 were driven by wealthy aristocrats, you know, kind of waving to the poor old peasants as they went by. It was another way just to feel that you were one of the little people. 
<laughs> you know, whereas that, you know, in the Fran- in 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 the states and in and in France and in Germany, you know, cars were put into the hands of people a lot earlier on, so that you know prices came down. They became a bit more normalised, and I think also in those countries, not just cars, but things like trucks and fire engines and you know useful vehicles that had um, an internal combustion engine were were, tra- were busy transforming lives. It was the start of getting things into the stores very quickly. You know, I mean, now we're in the we're in the internet shopping age where even that's redundant. But a lot of these um, powered vehicles that weren't cars, it just absolutely transformed your life. You know, the fact that the police could get to an emergency very quickly. Um, you know, think of that nowadays without a police car. Um, and so I think a lot of those, uh, all, they're almost little individual events uh, of, intro- of the introduction of um, gasoline power to these various vehicles started to, you know, just, make a big sea change really and plus of course lots and lots of road building to actually accommodate the cars you know the infrastructure that started to be needed um that also changed the shape of the country really mm-hmm. yeah i want to talk about that a little later um you, dr- you address a subject isn't it it, it is, is it is it's it's, it's this, wonderful this for us was was so uh you know so uh chewy when actually putting this book together because we we weren't just talking about straightforward, you know, Chevrolets and Jaguars and Renaults and all the rest of it. We were really sort of trying to think of this interactive way that the, that the car has been part of our lives. That's mm. what I was trying to get at with the book. And uh, so, you know, for a lot of our writers who are all uh, what we call petrol heads, you know, obsessed <laughs> with, uh, with, with speed and power, it was, uh, they had to sort of think slightly differently here. Yeah, yeah, and and, and fun. Yeah, different. And, and it really gets into the fact sense. that. Uh, let me ask this question uh, um, now, uh, because we've set it up nicely here. What what does the car mean then uh, to us? I've I've written down a bunch of adjectives, um, and has that changed over time? Uh, the first of it you put in your forward freedom, right? The car means yep. freedom. Yeah, well, I think I think it did. We it did mean freedom until I think we get to. Um, I mean, how far back do we go? I, I, I think I think cars have spelled freedom broadly until I would say the late 1980s, where uh, we're still getting an awful lot of um, developing middle class families around the world getting their first car and so on. But I think we've we have actually now reached the time where cars are a bit of a restriction. You know, certainly in a um, small European country like the UK, you know, road spaces at a premium. You can't park anywhere without having to pay. You, you know, you're penalised on a, a kind of sliding rate of taxes for how much pollution it produces. Um, you know, everywhere now with a car, I, th- I think people buy them with the dream of freedom and then they use them in the world of restrictions. Mm. Do, you, do you know what I mean by yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I, I suppose we... We are, we are, as, as, as you said in your introduction, you know, we are heading possibly towards the era of um, driverless cars. I'm not sure how quickly that's going to actually arrive. But, uh, you know, when you, when you no longer drive the car, and in fact, when you even just lease the car, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to buy into, a, you know, the magic of a car brand of any kind because it's just going to come to your front door and take you to where you want to go. Everything's going to change, really. You know, um, BMW just won't mean anything anymore. You'll be more concerned with your with your tariff of you know, rental prices for when it comes. So I think we're entering this. You know, we're entering this very interesting 
uh, sort of transitionary period where I think we're being a little bit uncoupled from the magic of the car in mm. a way. Um, now, I already find, um, uh, you know, and I'd be interested to know if other people feel the same, but I already find when you talk to people, you know, at the bar, um, uh, you know, people are now boasting about how far they get on a charge on their hybrid as opposed to how fast they got from A to B. And that's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting uh, way of changing because obviously you can't fight the speed cameras anymore. And uh, so, you know, just saying how quick you are, it, it's, it's been replaced with how thrifty you are, which is an interesting change. Mm. You say, you know, the freedom in some ways, in some places has morphed into restrictions. Um, yes. But I imagine there will always be, or maybe not. You can you can give me your opinion. Always be a romance for some people associated with the car. Well, I think I think there are. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of resonance for um, what car what a car means before you actually purchase it yourself. You know, it, it used to be a kind of part of your part of your growing up, part of your maturing. You know, everyone in a way should should be able to have a sports car before they get married when they then have to have a people carrier. Um, and, uh, you know, many, many very famous uh, car brands, of course, are built on this you know, amazing history, you know, often going back over 100 years in which they've won some very heroic races or they've produced these beautiful models that, uh, you know, has inspired so many people. Perhaps they've even seen them at the movies, you know, in, the, in a, as, part of a, as part of a film that they can lose themselves in. So, you know, I think it, that kind of thing is going to go on for a, you know, a long time. But it'll be interesting how, you know, as I say, how you, um, how you transfer your allegiance from a car where the sheer power of the engine is replaced by, um, you know, the ability, as in a Tesla or something like that, to, to do 200 miles on one charge. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, you know, it's, it's a sort of funny, a funny switch, really. Because you won't be listening to the sound of the exhaust pipe anymore. You'll be <laughs> checking on the electric charge meter. <laughs> right. <laughs> and diff- does yeah. that have the same romance? I mean, is, is it, are you controlling the beast in the same way? I don't know. It's difficult to know, really, isn't it? It's, it'd be a very different experience from driving an early Chevrolet Corvette with yeah. all that noise and, you know, vibration and uh, kind of uh, the whole thing feeling alive and uh, alive to just what you do with the end of your foot. And that's that's a key word, right? The the experience for the much of the history of the car, it's 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 been an experience. And maybe are we transitioning to a point where it's just it's just transportation? Maybe car ownership will will uh, will go down, will plummet. I don't know what what the future. Well, possibly. I mean, you know, in 1959, we have the we have the the peak of the you know the amazing sculptures from Detroit with the, those fantastic fins on the back, loads of chrome. You know, they're about the size of a of a swimming pool, um, massive V8 engine up the front. And, uh, you know, we, we get into the 60s, and it's almost like the hangover after the party, really, and particularly when, you know, people like Ralph Nader start to pop up and actually point out that sometimes cars, you know, kill you through negligence in the motor industry. And that, that you know, that starts to be... There's this, this starts to be the beginning of some kind of end at that point. Then we realize that all the, uh, all the stuff they put out in the environment, you know, is choking us and giving our kids asthma and all the rest of it. And that's another, uh, you know, chunk of the iceberg of car enjoyment that falls away. So, you know, we, they have been, they have sort of been under attack a little bit. 
uh, from exterior factors. Uh, so you know, I said earlier maybe maybe peak car was was perhaps in 1990. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a lot earlier than that that people mm. have been you know trying to put it into perspective. And of course, you know, the the car business both in the states and in Europe and Japan they're they're big employers. So there's another factor there. Um, do we you know do do we wish the end to to many cars in some ways? You know, when you look at it from a point of view of the economy, then you know, no, we don't. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's a very very multi-layered thing. You know, you don't just look out of the window at your car on the you know on the drive outside your house. You've you've got to consider it in in kind of so many ways. Really fascinating. It is fascinating. Uh, let's take a brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, talk more with Giles uh, Chapman. He is a leading international authority on the automobile, its industry, its culture, its history. And all of that comes together is in the new books called Drive, The Definitive History of Driving. And Giles Chapman is the editor-in-chief. This uh, It's a beautiful uh, book, a lot of uh, great photographs, illustrations. Um, and uh, we're talking today on Memorial Day, uh, appropriate where many people are going to be more in their cars through the summer. So we thought this an appropriate topic for Memorial Day. We reached Giles Chapman on Friday from uh, London. Um, we want to talk about how gas won over, early on it was steam, electric, was in the mix, but uh, gasoline won out. I want to talk about that. And this question that I've always wondered, uh, why? Why left versus right? And that's answered in the book. More following this break. Did you know that libraries in Cache Valley are being transitioned to the civic spaces of the future? Researchers have received a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to work with libraries in northern Utah and the students they serve. They will involve students and their families in maker activities, which combine arts and crafts with technology and engineering. Teachers are excited to discover ways to reach more students. Many physics, biology, art, and shop teachers now have their students engaged in these projects. In North Logan, the library is already opening its doors to all kinds of learning activities. Community members are coming to participate in arts, crafts, and computer classes for seniors. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. We're back with Giles Chapman. He's editor-in-chief of an interesting new book, Drive, The Definitive History of Driving. And uh, we uh, record this conversation on Friday. Giles Chapman joining us from London. Um, Giles Chapman, uh, this idea of, um, and this has geopolitical ramifications throughout our history. Uh, I guess steam probably was never going to be the one that won out, but uh, gas versus electric and uh, gas won. How did that happen? Well, I, I think it's, uh, you know, we, we, we developed uh, very quickly once the car was up and running. It needed a, a supply infrastructure. And, uh, you know, nowadays we, we pull into, into gas stations and um, we don't even think about them. And at the very beginning, uh, you know, gasoline was, was just one of many different fuels. Um, it, it had a good distribution. It was uh, for sale in, you know, pharmacies and, uh, you know, corner stores and all kinds of things. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, the oil industry was very, was very quick to see something it could, it could grow. And, um, you know, uh, as I said earlier, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the various, uh, technical things that came along uh, in the history of the car really did help to, 
you know, to push that along. I, I think they suffered from, electric cars suffered from exactly the same thing they suffer from today, and that's range anxiety. And, uh, you know, will, will you really have enough charge to get to the end of your journey? Uh, and I think as the road network expanded, it was, it was obvious that, it, you know, it was easier to actually uh, go from point to point filling up on gasoline rather than, you know, I mean, how would you do it? How would you, where would you recharge an electric car, you know, beyond a 50-mile radius of where you lived? So, the, the, you know, things like electric cars actually were very popular with people like doctors um, in the early days because they would have a, a, a fairly small uh, um, round of patients around the surgery where they worked. And, you know, they'd be able to do their house calls and electric car made perfect sense. But it wouldn't really have made sense going anywhere because you wouldn't have been able to charge it. You know, there wouldn't be any electric points. Who could you ask? You know, <laughs> it, it would be very, very difficult. And uh, I, I think by the time um, by the time those limitations were seen, you know, petrol firms had, uh, or gasoline firms had, had developed very rapidly, and they'd uh, you know managed to get their supply system up and running. So you know, and, and in in the same way, steam I think was. Uh, just not versatile enough. You, you need you, you, so much preparation is needed to get the boiler up to a certain level, so that there's enough steam to turn the, uh, you know, to turn the, uh, past the, the the paddles that will then push the pistons, and you know, finally you could go. And steam cars have never really returned, and uh, uh, um, they're just a, it's just a little bit of a spent technology. Although you know, fairly environmentally friendly, I think we would we would think by today's standards. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole history of the automobile is littered with these, with these things that, you know, come and go, really, um, including cars with three wheels. You know, they don't make sense. This is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 you know, we, the, the cars that we, that, we, that we do all drive today, they are as a result of a whole hundred-year refining of all, the, of all the oddities, you know, basically got rid of. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, and a lot of things have been added, that uh, um, such as you know seat belts and airbags, which were almost sort of laughed at or you know decried at the beginning, and then they've become you know proven through statistics that they that they work. So that's probably a bit of a fuller answer than mm-hmm. you wanted, really, wasn't it? But no, that's it's it's all very interesting. <laughs> uh, I'd like to I'd like to have you address this. Uh, you know this uh, curiosity. It's uh, you travel to a different country and you drive on a different side of the road. Uh, in yeah. you know the UK, I believe you drive on the uh, left, isn't it? And we do here in America. Yeah, it's, it's on the right, yeah. and that you go to various countries. And it's uh, how did how did that all come about? Well, the this, the split. It's it's very contentious about where it came from, but it does seem uh, it does seem that particularly in France they were. Um, they were very anxious uh, not not to back in the 18th century. They were very anxious to do anything that wasn't the uh, wasn't the British way. So that, so it really did come from a from a bit of a, a decree there. And then the countries that drive on the left, a little bit like the UK, and they're not many of them, but they are quite significant because they're places like Japan, like South Africa. Um, the, the Japanese one, fascinatingly, uh, the, the, you know the the, the British being the pioneers of railways, helped them build their uh, railway network. And the Japanese just kind of automatically, you know, adopted the British um, system of driving on the left there. So, And there's only really been one country that's made the switch, uh, which was Sweden. And it's remarkably recently, actually, until 
1967, they were all driving on the right, just like you do in the States. And, uh, you know, they, they decided they really had to, they had to change because of all their neighbors in North Europe driving on the other side. So they, they had a whole day of, of changeover where they switched the signs and, you know, everyone had to get used to it. Amazingly, I don't think there were any accidents Oh. Or certainly nothing serious on the first day where everyone had to drive on the other side of the road. I mean, can you imagine you imagine doing it in the States now? Just one day and <laughs> one then day you all to drive the on the other side. Wow. I mean, just, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? Would, it? It, would, it would seem like it would uh, be chaos. Yeah, well, I think there would be. And, you know, Brit, the Brits have looked into doing this very often because we're the only country in, in Europe which does drive on the, on the left. Uh, so, you know, when you, when you cross the English Channel, here on a ferry or in the or in the in the tunnel, you know, you have to come out the other side and really say, right, you need you need, you need a post-it note on the steering wheel <laughs> with an arrow saying over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we we've looked into it many times, but you know, this, the infrastructure is 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 so built that I think they feel that um, you know the authorities feel there's just no point in doing it, and that we will forever be different to mm. our continental neighbours. Um, uh, I was reading uh, in, in in the book, one of the theories is, I found this very interesting, um, some nations just followed what they did with the horse. Easier to mount from the left if you're right-handed. It's easier to get in your car. And it, on, one of the theories in America, why we're driving the ride, is that teams of horses then it became... Uh, easier to uh to be on the the rear left horse i guess and uh, therefore you and pass on the left so you so you got on the yeah. right you drove on the right i don't know if any of that's you know really documented but it's interesting well it, it is interesting and i i think i think actually if you to sort of analyze it I, you know we, we give it two pages in in 360 pages of the, of the book so i i would have it, it's it's tantalizing because you you feel you want to go to libraries and find out the real reason uh, but I, I think in the, at the end of the day, there is, you know, it's it's just it's a it's a process of, of evolution and decision making that's just just got us here, and that there in fact, you know, there isn't particularly a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's certainly no no particular safety aspect for uh, for driving on either side, really, because everything's you know everything's reverse engineered already. So, um, uh, um, I mean. I, I often wonder how uh, you know American visitors to Europe find it when they hire a car and they you know they set off in Italy or France. You know how long it takes to to really get used to that because even in your adjoining countries you don't you don't swap sides, do you? No, you know no. In, in either Canada or Mexico. So uh, uh, there's a consistency. There might be a slight change in the style of the road signs and the speed limits and so on, but you know you're going to feel at home when you cross the border. Uh, whereas uh, you know here it's. Uh, You've got to give yourself a tutorial before you set off. Yeah, yeah, and with, with high stakes, right? With high stakes. Um, I want to have you talk about how the car became, the automobile became um, widely adopted. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Henry Ford and his Model T yeah. made it more affordable. Um, also, I was reading yeah. the book, Reliability Trials, and, you know, d- demonstrating to people that this could be a reliable mode of transportation yeah. over long distances. Well, they, they were very much in the, in the pioneer days of the car, you know, when, when all you really needed to prove that it could, you know, perform a 50, 70, 100-mile journey and not actually explode or break down. Uh, it, you know, people at the beginning weren't too impressed with speed, they, they, but they were impressed when a car could actually get from one point to another. Um, 
And as I, as I might have mentioned earlier, we, we in this country, because of our, of our strange speed restrictions with the, the guy walking with the red flag in front of you, um, there was absolutely no ro- racing on the public roads anyway. Um, that would have been totally um, um, disallowed, unlike in you know France and Spain, where they would often race between you know sort of Paris and Madrid or uh, different European cities, uh, you know competitively trying to get there in the shortest possible time. Uh, we, we 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 were able to we had to pour our enthusiasm into these things like the thousand mile trial that went from London up to Edinburgh and back again, and um, that was before. Uh, 1900, and it was a big, you know, very, very testing uh, 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 thing to put a car through because uh, the engineers here hadn't really had a good opportunity to, you know, try and uh, uh, test their vehicles for durability on the public roads because of the restrictions. So, uh, so yes, uh, Henry Ford is very much the the pioneer of the of what we've come to call the people's car. And, uh, you know, he did create a car that was ideal for the U.S. and ideal for a lot of other countries where there, you know, were rough roads and so on. I mean, quite surprisingly, Egypt, quite a big market for the Ford Model T. But uh, in a country like the U.K., where they uh, they had quite a draconian tax system, the size of the engine really uh, militated against it. And so uh, cars here that, that did put people on wheels tended to be very much smaller the Model T, you know, with an engine of almost a third of the size, um, very compact dimensions and so on. Mm. Uh, the Austin 7 was the first one in Britain. There was one in France, Citroen 5CV. Um, they, were, they were very small cars, but they were, crucially, they were, if you like, a real car in miniature. It, it wasn't just a kind of, um, you know, a motorbike with an extra wheel. It really was a car with four wheels and two seats and Four little cylinders and so on, um, and they were the you know they were the cars that uh, did actually get us mobile. Finally, they weren't that it, they weren't terribly cheap. I mean, you know, even in the 1920s when the Austin Seven came along, 122 pounds I think it cost. That would have been two three years' salary. So still quite an expensive purchase. Uh, and it's only when those cars are five or six years old that, you know, you get a sort of second-hand car market or used car market that, that you know, you start to get a little bit of, um, of uh, equality and, you know, people are able to buy a second-hand car and get driving themselves. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, there's the VW Beetle, you know, Volkswagen, German for people's car, uh, set up as a, as a slightly dubious by the Nazi government, but uh, the legacy of it after the war was to really produce a fantastic people's car um, that not only sold very well in Europe, but, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm sure you know, did extremely well in America mm. and kind of changed, you know, changed people's outlook on what sort of car they were going to get. Because with the Beetle, every year it didn't change in its design. It was always very economical. It never broke down. It never let you down. And, um, you know, it, it made huge inroads into, into the States, changing people's perceptions about what a, what a car could do for you. Yeah, and, and an interesting experience. My, I had a roommate once who had a, a Beetle. I, I drove it a couple of times. Yeah. So, so low to the ground. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's an interesting experience, you know, and then the, the, the engine in the back, uh, 
and yeah. the and the radio not connected to the uh, you know the radio would would continue playing after you turned off the car. Right. <laughs> yes. I don't. I don't know if that was actually part of the original design or just how it ended up, really. Because, um, but it, you know, it was it was it was and remains an extremely good design. I mean, I think by modern standards, it's not very roomy inside, and it's possibly quite. Um, you're possibly quite vulnerable in the event of an accident and so on. You know, it's very much a 1930s design, but they got it so right. Um, what they really, you know, what they what they wanted to do with that car was to, um, you know, however you view the intentions of the German government in the 30s, they were they were they were trying to make a car that anyone could afford, and that they could, you know, really enjoy the. Uh, uh, kind of motoring that only rich people had had before. So it's a very sophisticated uh, piece of work, actually. And, you know, it was in production until right into the 21st century. It's amazing that you could, they were still being made in Mexico in 2003. So, uh, you know, that does give a, it does give an um, interesting window on, on the, you know, the overall rightness of that design. Albeit it is pretty old now, so, uh, but, but, you know, I, I know they are, you know, just everyone has such affection for that car, don't they? You they know, do. Both, they do. Yeah. Both here and in the US. I mean, I I don't know how frequently you see them on the roads there nowadays. Um. Yeah. We still still see some. Still see some. You know. And then, of course, the new Beetle. You know. You, you see. You see those. Uh, I want to yeah. have. Uh, the, That's you, a pale imitation, though, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Of the yeah. of the original. Some had to pastiche that that car. So uh, uh, has a bit of character, but. Uh, <laughs> There's something wrong about it, I find. <laughs> <laughs> something wrong. Yeah, just not just not the original. Uh, by the way, we're yeah, talking exactly. with we're talking with Giles Chapman. Uh, he is editor in chief of a beautiful new book. Um, it's uh, called Drive: The Definitive History of Driving. Uh, we thought a, a good topic for this Memorial Day, and uh, we recorded this conversation with him on Friday. We're reaching him from London. Uh, this book is is out, and our conversation continues following this break. Arts Reporting on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost, celebrating USU's Year of the Arts. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for tuning in on this Memorial Day. My guest for the hour is Giles Chapman. He is editor-in-chief of a new book, Drive, the Definitive History of Driving. We're on tape. We recorded this with Mr. Chapman. Uh, He uh, joined us from London on uh, Friday. But you can still reach us here. We'd love to get your comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll get that on at the beginning of the next program. I want to have you uh, talk. There's a section in the book about... uh, uh, about how cars have fired the imagination, specifically uh, cars as featured in uh, movies and television. One yeah. example, uh, you know, I'd well remember this: the the Ford Gran Torino from Starsky and Hutch. And you know, the 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 list goes on and on. There, there's a picture in the book of Rita Hayworth posing with a car. <laughs> I, I'm finding finding it difficult to link uh, Starsky and Hutch with Rita Hayworth. Yeah, directly. <laughs> that's a, that's a long that's a I long stretch, isn't it? Yes. No, even as an old lady, I don't believe she was. No, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, they certainly by the seventies when Starsky and Hutch was uh, was uh, you know an enormous uh, global hit. They they had realised you know that the the power of the small screen. Uh, I I I think I think 
uh, cars, you know, started to be, if you like, um, turned into characters with things like the James Bond series, but also perhaps perhaps a few earlier shows. You know, I mean, I you know, I'm sure many people listening to this uh, watched Route 66 um, uh, when it was on TV. Uh, was that the name of the show? Uh, I believe it was. Yeah. I think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was actually filmed on location with a Corvette and everything. And you know, a car was really made part of the of the of the narrative, if you like, because it was you know you were going on a journey with the characters and so on. Um, I mean, in this country, we we've we've until recently had a, um, a believe it or not, a ban on product placement, so that if any car was supplied by a manufacturer for use, uh, you know, in a in a role. Um, on TV, you weren't really allowed to refer to it. Uh, it's different in the movies, uh, but I, I know I know in the states they, they didn't have they didn't have that restriction, and so you you know with 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 that Ford the Ford Torino that was in Starsky and Hutch, I think Ford were really eager to get involved, and they even made a limited edition of of the car with the white stripe on the side. They're mm. pretty valuable now if if you ever find mm. one in a barn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Um, and one interesting story that uh, that, that might resonate. Um, we 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 had a, a show made here in the 1960s called The Saint, uh, which was quite a big hit on American TV. I think it got networked by NBC, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but that yeah. had a very famously had a, a white Volvo in it that was part of the um, part of the guy's character. And um, uh, a friend of mine. Um, in America, ended up buying that car and uh, found it over here and took it home. And I think he's he's driven all over the country in it. And everywhere he took that car, you know, people were just amazed to see that it's the actual one. You know, it, it's it's the part of the character of the main hero and so on. Mm. So uh, you know, so they 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 really last these things. Uh, whether whether films and TV shows built around a car actually make the best viewing or not, I mean that's. Yeah, it's highly debated. Right, really. right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think yeah. if you're noticing the car too much, then maybe there's a yeah. problem with the plot. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you know, Knight Rider, that start, you know, shows like that where, where the car, yeah. where the car yeah. is I mean, the main know, character. They, yeah. are, are they a difficult watch these days? Yeah. I, I enjoyed them when I was a kid. I'm, I don't know if I'd enjoy it quite so much now. But, yeah. you know, that, that was a show just predicated on that on that car, you know. With, and then actually, you know, quite prescient, really, because it mm-hmm. was driverless. Yeah. It used AI. Um uh, had quite a good guy, the guy, the good-looking guy at the wheel, who seemed to do heroic things everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, we haven't had a good car TV show for quite a long time. Yeah, certainly nothing like Miami Vice or um, uh, you know, as, as, you, as you say, uh, uh, Knight Rider. So mm. perhaps perhaps it's something that could be revived. Could could be but, could be, and, and maybe but for goodness sake, make them good stories that just happen right. to feature the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe rather than the same the same car chase every single week. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Although I think that had a, a, some attraction to the demographic that was watching those shows. Um, I think you're right, actually. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think you could have the Dukes of Hazard Hazard without the car chases. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe the new show will be ultra modern. It'll it'll feature, uh, you know, maybe the, the the characters will take Uber or something, you know, or maybe it'd be a. Well, of course, it gives them more time for dialogue, doesn't yeah, it? It does. Instead of looking at the road, they can look at each other. Yeah. Um, it, even uh, even when the car is not the central focus of the uh, of the film or television show, I, I find it uh, interesting. I was just rewatching The Big Sleep, a classic Bogey and Bacall movie, and yeah. uh, just fascinated. The, the cars are definitely not central part of the of the, the script, although there's a lot of cars in it. Uh, this is from the 30s, and I was just fascinated yeah. to to see what 
cars were on the road at that time, and uh, and the film takes you inside and out of the cars based on the plot. It, it was just fascinating. Yes, yes, yes. No, I have to check that one out. I haven't seen it for a long time, actually. Also, uh, just culturally, I was I was thinking uh, in in the book. Um, you talk about the, uh, the the Ford Fiesta as being a very successful, uh, uh, you know, model, very widely adopted model. Uh, yeah. I, I lived in Argentina for a time, and uh, the people would tell me this was in the early '80s, so not too far past the uh, the troubles there. You know, the yeah, yeah, those yeah. the military junta would just disappear people, and the people uh, there told me um, it was the, the, the green Ford. It was green, green Ford Falcons became. Very feared. Government would uh, pull up in a green Ford Falcon. Uh, they'd force you in the car, and you'd never be seen again. So that, you know, kind of unpleasant. Oh, my God. Well, now, now, now that is a sinister, sinister anecdote. Yeah. I wish, I'd, I wish, I wish I'd sort of known that, and I would have somehow made a page for it in here. <laughs> uh, so, that, so that, you know, associations of that, of that kind, yeah. you know, negative associations, uh, yeah. because of what the government chose. Who knows why they yeah. chose the Ford Falcon, but... Well, I mean, you know, along the, along very similar lines, uh, you know, in, in, in the Russia of the 1960s and 70s, when the Iron Curtain was very much, uh, you know, um, up there and impregnable, uh, the, the government officials would have special lanes for their, um, on the motorways for their, for their own presidential cars, which were called Zills. Uh, they were, weirdly, they were actually quite close copies of American cars of the 1950s. So although they might have said they, uh, they didn't approve of the decadent West, uh, that wasn't reflected in what they liked driving around in. Uh, and it was the same in Czechoslovakia. You know, they had a, they had a national car there called a Tatra, uh, which was not available to the ordinary person. And, uh, you know, as, as you... Um, exactly as you say, I think if you, if you saw one of those pulling up outside your house at dusk, with a couple of guys in dark suits, you know, it's time to go for the back door. <laughs> right, or there'd be feeling of, of dread, yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, you know, these, these sort of communist countries, they've, they've, always, um, they've always sort of fostered a, a sort of unique um, a kind of place for the car, you know, it's something that not everyone can have. And uh, they, I think, wanted to prove to Western observers, you know, that they could make cars that were just as good as the ones from the US or Britain or Germany or whatever, and they never were. And of course, we, we, we discovered this, you know, in a, in a very uh, shocking way when the, the Berlin Wall did fall down in 1990, and all these cars called Trabants came flocking over the border. Uh, they've got a body made of cotton waste, and the, uh, the two-stroke engine is, you know, I mean, you wouldn't want to stand near the exhaust pipe for more than a couple of seconds because you'd be gassed. Uh, so it was a it was a, a rather shocking uh, you know window on what on what people had had to put up with behind the Iron Curtain for very many years. You know, of, often a car would be uh, manufactured and sold in Europe, maybe by Fiat, and then when it was replaced, they'd sell all the tools to the Russians, and they would just be making them for years. You know, they'd have huge factories three hundred miles east of Moscow where these things would be you know turned out, and people would be. Uh, uh, you know, anxious to get one, and it'd be the sort of vehicle that, over in the West or in the States, you you just laugh at. Mm. Uh, so it was a there was very much a kind of two speed world in those days. You know, between the if you like the the haves and, and the would like to haves, and uh, of course most of that's now gone. But uh, it was a you know it was a it was a, it was a strange time. That's an interesting. There there are some uh, photos in the in the book. 
uh, about that time, 1989, fall of the of the wall. And that's interesting that, you yeah. know, the, the two different kinds of vastly different kinds of vehicles then meet. And one one interesting uh, fact there that there is you know, a massive gridlock because everybody wanted to see the other side, I guess. Well, I mean, I you know, I, th- I think I think it didn't take long for Volkswagen to take over the place that made those, and they they put a, a relatively um, unpolluting engine in, and you know, and in the end, the the, the factory just started making uh, making Volkswagens just like you know everyone else was used to. But we we still do have lots of places in the world where you know, if you like, quite second-rate cars are manufactured, and they they find a ready market, and you know. Iran is actually one place where they do have quite a big motor industry, and uh, because of the restrictions put on the country by um, other nations, you know, they have to sort of make do and mend. So they've had all kinds of cars that have been long gone in the West that, that carry on in, uh, you know, in some of these uh, um, restricted countries in in the Middle East. We 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 had one from Britain that, that you know by the time we'd stopped buying this car called the Hillman Hunter over here, um, all the tooling got shipped out to Iran, and it was made for another sort of 30 or 40 years. Absolutely amazing. You know, you'd never see one in Britain any longer. If you went there, it'd be the only car you'd see. (laughs) (laughs) So it was kind of, you know, a strange, uh, a very, very strange uh, situation. And, you know, I think if you do travel the world on business or or even on some more um, uh, kind of adventurous holidays, you you will see all sorts of cars that... uh, Although sadly, um, uh, as, as I also, as, as we do say in the book, um, recently we've actually seen one car-making nation completely lose its entire industry, car industry, which is amazing. That, that being Australia, you know, that has been a place where Fords and Chryslers uh, and Mitsubishi's and all sorts of cars were built for many years, and they've just the whole industry has vanished. You know, put out of business by Japan and uh, and possibly China. Hmm. So. Uh, uh, the you know the shape of the car business around the world is evolving with 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 you know I think as you said earlier geopolitical changes themselves. Well, we're, uh, we have maybe five or six minutes left in the conversation. We had so much fun here. We're reaching the end. Um, oh, by the way, we're talking with Giles Chapman. He is editor in chief of an uh, interesting new book, beautiful new book, Drive: The Definitive History of uh, Driving. And uh, I want to uh, get into the end of the book. There's a section called Great Drives. I want to have you talk a little bit uh, about that. Uh, maybe. Oh, thank you. Do you do you have a, a favorite drive, and and maybe mention a couple of those great drives? Well, this was a this was a section where I I think we um uh, my publishers you know we we got to the end of the the whole narrative of it and they they sort of said okay what about actually going somewhere now so um, I was actually able to. Um, commissioner writer i know who has driven an awful lot of these very spectacular drives that we include and um i, I think what, what we what we tried to do was was to have um you know some very uh, contrasting journeys uh, that were both uh, great mountain roads or you know great coastal drives i mean you know i i think over 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 in this side of the world people don't realize what a spectacular drive the florida keys is for example you know, and in fact, until he until he'd written this up for me, and we got some good pictures in, I, I sort of thought, wow, that is that is quite spectacular. So, um, you know, cars can take you to where you want to go, and um, I think uh, 
it's very easy to forget how enjoyable a car, a, a really great car journey or voyage can be when you don't actually have to drive to the office and you're not having to fill the car up with shopping and so on. You know, we, we, uh, we're all so busy that I, I, I think it's, it was a great chance for me to sort of include some, you know, places to go now, really. Um, mm. Some of them perhaps a bit dangerous. Uh, yeah, so some of, the, some of the photos, some of the pictures yeah. <laughs> make me wish maybe, maybe I'd be a passenger, get, get somebody a very, a very good driver to drive that. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, that does, that does actually bring you to the interesting, you know, the interesting idea of what is good driving. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, don't, uh, I, I think it's, it's all very well going fast in a car on the public highway so long as, uh, A, uh, the road can cope with it, and B, you can cope with it as a driver. Mm-hmm. So you know, we we are we are blessed with some very old routes in uh, in Europe, which are you know amazing to to, to go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I don't know. I think the older the older I've got, the more the more I hate being driven fast in someone else's car. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just must be my survival instinct mm-hmm. is kicking in, you know, and I sort of think, uh, this isn't the way I want to die, so please slow down. <laughs> uh, whereas perhaps when I was 18 and I just got my license and I'd grown a pair of red horns on the top of my head, you know, I thought very, very differently. Uh, but, you know, again, part of the restriction, um, I, I don't know what it's like across the whole of the states, but certainly here, there's, you know, there's a lot of speed cameras around, a lot of speed restrictors around, a lot of things to slow you down, calm you down, and um, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, it, it, it can be a bit of a menace, mm-hmm. the car. And uh, you know, we all know when we've when we've heard or seen the results of, of reckless driving that it, uh, it's it's not fun. Anyway, my son, my son is fifteen. I'm beginning to worry about him. Uh, even wanting to pass his driving test. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he isn't talking about it there. at the moment. But you right. know, it's it's as parents, it's one of those things you you fret about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I I, I I I think possibly as a time of life thing, and also as a result of of, of doing this book, I, I I've, I've got it in perspective. <laughs> if I believe... that doesn't sound too sound too dull, you know, no, I don't want to sound right. too forbidding. But, <laughs> right, uh, right. You know. I believe uh, I believe Montana is still unlimited. You could come and, uh, but but they they will pull you over yeah. if they consider that you're driving recklessly or, or too fast yeah. for for conditions. I uh, just have a couple. No, of I minutes. think I'm right in saying you can drive there. Is it when you're 14 in certain areas? Uh, so I think Idaho. Idaho I believe it's 14. If it's on the yeah. farm or something, yeah, 16 here in Utah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, all young men shouldn't be allowed to touch a car until they're 25. Really. Uh, yeah, I you know, agree. The, I agree. The testosterone but, levels have subsided a little. Yeah. They, you know. <laughs> I would not have agreed to when I was 16, but I agree now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> but you know, I said, you know, your first car is always something very, very, very exciting and meaningful as well, isn't it? And it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be expensive. It, it just has to be yours. And uh, you know, you finally, um, you know, you finally gain so much freedom with it um uh, the ability to um to do what you want at the weekend and um you know it's uh, it is a marvelous thing uh, i i'm happy to say my first car was an american car as well so i'm uh, i'm was very uh, uh, i was very pleased with my first one what, I had what? a cadillac a cadillac you had a cadillac oh I okay did. yeah <laughs> all right i bought yeah. I, I had it bought i bought someone bought it for me in the states and i had it uh, shipped over here and uh, uh with some friends we went all over europe in it 
it only had an eight liter engine so uh you know yeah. <laughs> 10 right. miles to the gallon was was a good day yes uh, but yes it was, it was yeah. great and i you know i have a, i have an enormous respect for uh for um, u.s uh, car engineering you know they they have produced some fantastic vehicles over the years maybe they're not all suited to british roads mm-hmm. but uh you know when we think of some of the icons the uh you know jeep wagoneer and the ford mustang and uh uh you know there's some there's, they've Really, Detroit and the states have produced some amazing cars. Mm. Do you have finally uh, just about a minute left? Do you have a favorite memory associated with with cars? You're, you've obviously uh, you know made your career around uh, cars, but uh, but personally, yeah, I'm a, I'm afraid I can do nothing else. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's terrible. <laughs> but well, I mean, I I, I think um, uh, as you as you've asked me, I'll tell you that uh, the only new car I ever I've ever bought was a Fiat sports car and. Um, when I got married, uh, I went on honeymoon on it, and we put it. Uh, we went uh, uh, through the tunnel under the English Channel, put it on the train in France. It took us all the way down to Rome, and then I was able to drive in the Italian sunshine with my new wife and my sports car, which she then made me sell, sell afterwards. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was just marvelous, really. Mm. Uh, really did have a great time doing it. So uh, I, I achieved lots of things all at once. You know, my only brand new car, my only sports car. And uh, just an amazing, amazing journey back up through Italy and Switzerland. And uh, it was just fantastic, really, it was. Uh, but um, I know I'm a boring family man. You know, I'm, right. I'm just interested in going to the to the refuse site with uh, with garden waste. How much of that can I get in the back? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of us can relate. Yeah, that's the journey you know, which, of life. Which, of course, has its own, you know, levels yeah. of satisfaction, which, it, you, it which you inhabit and enjoy, you yeah. know. Yeah, I think, anyway. Certainly true. Well, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. Giles Chapman is editor-in-chief of a new book, uh, Drive, The Definitive History of uh, Driving. Well worth uh, the look. And I'll uh, throw out a couple of questions to listeners at the end here. We're on tape here, but love to get your perspective. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll get your answers on our website and at the beginning of our next program. I'm interested in your favorite drive. We're heading into summer. What uh, were you uh, interested in driving, your favorite drive, and your, your favorite Favorite car, maybe associated uh, memory associated with car. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Giles Chapman has joined us uh, from London. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, it's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. Stay with us. Coming up next is the TED Radio Hour. UPR is KUSR 89.5 Logan. KUSK 88.5 Vernal. KUSL 89.3 Richfield, KUST 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSUFM 91.5 Logan. UPR is a statewide and listener-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, streaming online at upr.org. <laughs>